Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Nick, thanks for taking time. Um, can't wait till we can finally connect again in person, but uh, I, I know that uh, there's been so much going on in the AML field the past couple of years. I thought it would be interesting and valuable to ask you a little bit about the most recent report uh, from Canada's OSFI, uh, because I obviously met you when you were part of OSFI and uh, go back a number of years. And I think it's always important for folks here in the States to appreciate how Canada oversees AML and sanctions and CTF and that sort of thing. So I want to talk a bit about that. But if you wouldn't mind describing OSFI, um, you know, sure. what they're charged with doing, uh, how they interact in the AML field, and maybe a little bit about, you know, your time there and what you worked on. Sure. I'm happy to do that, John. And thanks for inviting me to this podcast. Um, so OSFI is the Canadian equivalent of the OCC. Uh, but unlike the U.S., it, it supervises every significant financial institution in the country. Most of the, well, all, all banks, without exception, are supervised by the federal government through, through OSFI. And in addition to that, many other financial institutions which are incorporated federally are also supervised by OSFI. So probably the, the back of the envelope calculation is that that takes care of about 80% of the regulated sector in Canada. So OSPI is very, very important regulator. It's one of the most significant regulators in the G7, G7 and indeed the G20. And uh, it has a very, very strong and very positive international reputation. Uh, I retired from it in 2017, having spent 18 years there. Uh, it is a very, very professional organization, very, very knowledgeable, operates very collegially. And um, it was um, it was uh, um, a pleasure to work there. And I, in many ways, I miss uh, my colleagues and and uh, and I miss the time that I spent at Austin. In terms of the AML role. OSFI got into, well, OSFI, and you may have noticed, noticed in their most recent annual report to Parliament that they've recently rescinded guideline B8. And, and I, in, in some respects, that's a bit of a shame because OSFI has had AML guidance around since way before FinTrack was created. Right. Uh, back in the days when, uh, well, when I joined, which was in 1999, uh, OSFI had uh, a, guide, a guideline B8, but it didn't look anything like the B8 that you've seen today. It was simply a reminder to banks, mainly the big banks, that if they saw suspicious activity, they were encouraged to report it to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Now, that's quite a significant change from where we are today, obviously. But it illustrates, the, the reason I mention it is that it illustrates to me the importance that OSFI always uh, assigned to assisting other federal agencies with the proceeds of crime issues. And But this is even before there was a Proceeds of Crime Act. So that guideline has always been in place. So this is the first time for many, many, many years that OSFI doesn't have any guidance in place on AML at all. 
and by by rescinding b8 they have left all of the guidance to fintrack the reason that otsby put this guideline b8 updated into place was following that events at the 9-11 events and at the same time coincidentally canada enacted its aml legislation it came into effect at about the same time so it, everything got rolled into this legislation, including the anti-terrorist financing stuff. And at the time, uh, FinTrack was only existed on paper, didn't have an organization. So they came to us and asked for our help to set up some form of supervisory program. So the supervisory program that I set up starting in on a, it was really on a pilot basis in 2020 sorry, in, in 2002, and uh, got the go-ahead to roll it out in 2004, was the first Canadian uh, super, AML supervisory uh, methodology that anybody has seen in this country. And um, <clears throat> we ran it with increasing uh, effectiveness, I feel, for about uh, 15 years, up until uh, about two or three years before I retired. Um, so, at, uh, the reason that, that that it was a natural fit, I think, for us was number one. At the time, OSFI, sorry, at the time, FinTrack did not have any financial penalties. So even if even if they found something, they wouldn't have been able to penalize anybody for it. But nonetheless, our role was to focus on the underlying systems and controls which banks have to have in place anyway. Right. So what we encouraged the banks to do was simply build on what they already had. Why did that fall naturally to us? Because that's what OSFI does. It, it, it evaluates all of the bank's internal controls and systems for financial uh, control reasons. We simply adapted that framework and ran it into the risk-based AML regime, which the FATF standards require countries to do. So to me, it was a natural fit. And whether or not you agree that that was a good idea, I think certainly think it was a good idea. I had some, when I was asked initially to do it, I had some reservations about it, which I expressed to the superintendent, but nonetheless, we worked around those and we, we got it done. And the, the, the proof of it lies in the fact that when Canada was evaluated in 2015 for compliance with the FATS standards, we were one of a number of, of, of a few, very few number of countries who got superior ratings for supervision on the effectiveness side of things in the FATF uh, in mutual evaluation of Canada in 20, which was published in 2016. So we must have been doing something right. Sure. right. And it's disappointing to me that that Aussie no longer has a role in this field. What What's the rationale for that, though? What is the reason why? Because it seems to me, like you said, if you get this superior rating and the work was being done in conjunction or with FinTrack, yeah. why, yeah. what was the policy reason to eliminate it from OSFI's uh, sphere of influence, if you will? I'm not sure that there is a reason. Okay. And, and if there is, I don't know what it, is I do know that I spent a great deal of time working with FinTrack and with the Department of Finance to point out uh, the advantages that would accrue to the system in Canada if 
FinTrack exercised its authority to um, delegate part of its compliance processes to, in, in our case, uh, OSPI for the federal sector, uh, and so that <coughs> so that we could continue this work. I mean, it was. I mean, everybody agreed that we were doing a good job. Sure. There wasn't any question about that. Uh, so I think that the, there were there must have been other political or philosophical reasons why. But FinTrack has the authority to delegate compliance controls to other partner agencies and indeed anybody. But it never chose to do that, and we and I could never understand the the reason. The reason. Let, let me just let me ask you this. I saw uh, a description of the reason in another trade paper. So, and it said yeah. this. It said the revisions of guideline B eight, which supported an initiative by OSFI and FinTrack to quote eliminate duplicate regulatory requirements on financial institutions doesn't sound like that's true that they weren't duplicate they were uh, they were coordinated right correct there the, yeah. the the b8 which has just been which has just been rescinded did right. not did not it explicitly states in it that it did not introduce any new regulatory or duplicative right we worked with the with the fintrack framework but we what what in essence we said to banks was look here are these requirements. You know, you've already got an expectation from OSFI that your compliance framework must enable you to comply with the Bank Act, all of the regulations under the Bank Act, regulations. You should build on that system to make sure that the elements that, that apply to you in the Proceeds of Crime Act are likewise administered and enforced internally in the same kind of way and it was so we so we built on that framework there was nothing duplicated we did not impose anything at all on the banks that they were not already obliged to do we simply pointed out what they needed to do in order to be in compliance so um let's go back to to the elimination of of this so today in 2022 yeah what is OSFI's supervisory role regarding compliance that touches on AML, if any? In other words, obviously, you still are looking at financial institutions and determining whether they're they're solid for financial reasons and and you know compliance and operational risk, all that sort of thing. From a practical standpoint, what is OSFI's role? Because when you first said this today. Nick, that is similar to the OCC. As we both know, the OCC obviously looks yeah. at underlying issues, but it also looks at the yeah. compliance response to AML and a dozen other yeah. requirements. No, you're right. I should have my head around this. Yeah. I should have said it's similar to the OCC except for the AML. Stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, in other words, uh, so that's you're right. Um, and the answer to your question is, I'm not sure what okay. role. Uh, OSFI currently has. I suspect that if uh, FinTrack are doing an inspection at a bank and they come across something that they don't understand, that they'll go to OSFI and ask for help clarifying it. But um, what it has done and, and what we feared at the time, what I expressed a concern about in, to my colleagues 
in OSFI and in FinTrack was, look, if you transfer everything to FinTrack, you're going to create a situation where you've got massive amount of overlay, overlap and duplication because FinTrack is going to have to learn how to become a risk-based supervisor. Right, right. And FinTrack didn't know how to do that. It, right. didn't, it didn't at the time. I, I should imagine that they are learning now, and I know that there are some very, very skillful and clever people one or two in particular, who have been at fin, at OSFI and who are now at FinTrack, they will understand what I'm the nuance of what I'm talking about. But um, but all that, of course, is costing FinTrack a lot of money. Sure, they they were getting a great deal financially when they when they when they delegated this work to us. Uh, I can't remember how much my department's budget was and i'm not sure i should say even if i remember right, but right. i can tell you it's probably um, a lot less than they're having to fork out now for all this knowledge which they have to train all of their compliance people on sure. uh, on the nuance of quality of risk management which we already were doing in spades so they're having to duplicate all that kind of know-how and all that kind of supervisory approach and so that it doesn't strike me as being particularly efficient or effective. You know, it's interesting that you, you say that because there's been some debate in the states about giving FinCEN primary, my words, but I think it's it's fairly clear, primary authority over financial institutions in AML, which is the same thing from your perspective would would uh, yeah. would happen here. We don't they don't have the resources. FinCEN doesn't have the people. There's just no way. And yeah. like you and like you've said, the OCC and then here we got the FDIC and the Federal Reserve. They're already doing all that uh, digging, and, and, if you will. So, and in, and in fact, when I was, as you know, I, I was a, an evaluator for the U.S. in mutual evaluation for the FATF, and I found a system that was extremely sophisticated, where where um, prudential supervisors like the FDIC, the OCC, the Federal Reserve were were conducting very, very sophisticated and knowledgeable AML programs, entirely risk-based, on right. their major banks, and the banks were working closely with them. And that is, in fact, the, the, the U.S. model was one of the models that I originally worked on when I set the Canadian system up back in, in Austria back in 2004. Right. We looked at the Federal Reserve of New York. They were very, They gave me a lot of their time. And I also went over to the UK and looked at what the uh, what the then um, the uh, oh, I've forgotten the name of it now the 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 uh, the entity which in those days was the AML supervisor right. and uh, and and came back and uh, I and I had it has to be said that I did get a fair bit of internal pushback on what this program was looking like and and I think that was because people in the financial supervisory world tend to be quite um, narrowly focused on on financial issues and they tend to regard um, conduct issues and other external issues that affect banks through a lens that sort of says well this is not really a financial risk so it's not you know this is not our it's not our yeah, they're very they're very siloed I was yeah. more to say, yeah, well, OSFI, I took a more practical approach. I said that mm -hmm. the knowledge and the methodology that we use to assess financial risk can be levered to look at these other risks. So we have a broader mandate 
potentially. And as one of my colleagues once said to me, you know, if 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 a if a big bank in Canada gets something wrong and money gets laundered, that's not the end of the world for the for that bank. But eventually, if things get out of hand, that bank will come crashing down because there's just so much dirty money going through. And what happened a couple of years later in the U.S. was that you had exactly that happen in the case of the famous Briggs Bank episode, sure. where yeah. you had an entire bank brought down because of the fact that it was laundering so much dirty money. No, that's true. Uh, let's talk a bit about the OSFI report. Uh, it's a report to Parliament, uh, obviously an annual report. Uh, it's obviously not focused on AML, but just reading from the quick summary here, uh, they say that it covers the completion of OSFI's strategic plan and includes a lot of things that are important uh, in the compliance world, uh, handling the challenges brought, brought by the pandemic, uh, increased digitalization, obviously, uh, everybody's grappling with that, um, emerging technologies, another big issue internationally and certainly domestically, uh, and a bunch of other things. And they also reference climate-related risk, which I thought was interesting, but we're starting to see some of that conversation in the U.S. as well. What was your basic takeaway of some of the elements in the report? I mean, obviously, all agencies in many countries do this. You know, they do they report to Congress or Parliament or what have you. <clears throat> and so they highlight some of their successes or some of the completion of some of the things they've been doing. They also talk about risks that they are dealing with. And I know there's a lot of information in the report about uh, the size of OSFI and the salaries and all that kind of stuff. But just general high level, what was your broad takeaway, because a lot of these banking agencies like OSFI have had to deal with the pandemic issues, you know, third party risks, supply chain, all that sort of thing. What were some of the things in the report uh, that, that you would focus on? Well, um, nothing really surprised me about these new areas of risks. And you mentioned the pandemic and climate change as, as, as two obvious examples where people might say, well, what has this got to do with, you know, the operation of banks? I mean, You've got to consider the Canadian context. OSFI is one of about five federal agencies that meet regularly in quarterly sessions. It's, and I, the, the acronym of the committee is SAC. I've just forgotten what that stands for for the minute. But the C stands for committee, and it's a combination of, uh, of the, um, the Bank of Canada, OSFI, the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, the... Uh, the, there's another federal agency that looks at um, um, uh, sorry, I'm blanking out That's consumer affairs yeah. and and so forth. And this this group acts as a think tank and a, a sort of a, a reporting mechanism and it's chaired by the superintendent. It's not chaired by the government. It's chaired hmm. by OSPI, and that's to give it a, an independent, if you will, sort of uh, mandate the work that this committee does. And so this group is designed to sit around every quarter and worry about anything that could affect the, not just the banks, but right. the Canadian financial system. Sorry, the other agencies involved is the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which is the, you know, the guarantee organization that that, that guarantees uh, banks, uh, bank loans or mortgages to new borrowers, people like okay. that. So you've got this massive you know, you've got this agency people sitting around every quarter looking at risk and how this will affect the Canadian financial system and, and any anything. So you talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, 
any of these, any geopolitical factors um, would be would be factored into the mix. And and so OSFI, at the end of the at the end of these discussions, each agency is agrees to go away and do this and that, this and such. So sort of having regard to their own mandate as, as what they will do to look at new areas of concern in their own particular field. So, and they would consider tons of data based upon how, for example, climate change is driving up insurance costs when you've got floods and all right. this kind of stuff. So this stuff does tend to have a longer term impact upon the ability of financial institutions to operate. So it's a, it's a very sophisticated and long-term way of looking at risks and and making sure then that managements of individual financial institutions have got the processes and policies in place to make sure that they're addressing these risks. Let me ask you, with the, with a report like this, so if the uh, when the OCC does their semi-annual agenda, the Fed does their reports, sometimes there's a follow-up where the Congress and in your case the Parliament would have hearings about the report, potentially legislative recommendations. Does that always follow suit or not necessarily? Well, the legislators would uh, be looking at legislation. They would they would want to be informed from the experts. What are what do the experts say about these risks when they are looking at legislation? So, for example, if they're if they're enacting a new budget or if they're enacting a new piece of legislation to that would affect one of the agencies, they would bring in witnesses from the senior management of these agencies. And I've done it myself okay. when. When they were looking at, uh, for example, several years ago, when Parliament was looking at uh, changes to the Proceeds of Crime Act, uh, they brought in experts from the Department of Finance, from OSFI, from FinTrack, also from the private sector, uh, and and to get everybody's point of view in on uh, what was being proposed, what they thought the effect would be, whether it was enough, whether it was too much. And um, I, I found those exercises very interesting. And it was always interesting to note that the most tough and most penetrating questions came from our unelected senators. They were much better at asking questions than uh, than the MPs. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, let let me uh, get you out of here on this. I really appreciate you taking some time with us. Given given what you've done in Canada in terms of, you know, crafting an, an AML uh, supervisory regime, and and not, and now you you and you've also done FATF reviews. Um, I, we chatted briefly before we went online here that uh, you're, you're now on a bank board. What's your take of the financial sector, and how they've responded over time? to money laundering and financial crime issues, both in Canada and just generally? What, what's your take? It's, you know, it's been going on for decades. There's, yeah. been, there's been enforcement actions, certainly there've been problems, but generally speaking, uh, what's your take about folks in the private sector and how they handle these uh, various responsibilities? Yeah, I think well, one of the one of the big things, of course, that has happened is the the so-called public-private partnerships, and I'm thinking of the one that Peter Warwick got going with uh, BMO and uh, and FinTrack in terms of the the um, fighting. Uh, um, uh, I guess it was 
uh, slavery and uh, no, human trafficking. Yeah. Trafficking. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So, um, the all that that's all good stuff. And uh, my only concern about it, if there is a concern, and it's and it also applies to the FATF level, is that there's a, there's now a lot of branch work going off into specific predicate offenses that generate the proceeds of crime. And and um, I've, when I started to become involved with the FATF, there was very little uh, invo- discussion about about predicate offenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point was made that predicate offenses generate the proceeds of crime, and the FATF work was about how to detect that money and how to um, and how to uh, get suspicious. Uh, suspicions moved from banks to the authorities. Right now, it's 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 spread out into a lot of predicate work. I'm and I'm not close enough to the FATF work anymore to know whether that's hugely a good thing or whether right. that's marginally a good thing. It, it it's probably a good idea, but to have people understand how these funds come to be generated, I'm not sure how much it benefits somebody out there in bankland who's you know working in a in a in a in a in an office where they're supposed to recognize suspicious activity um <clears throat> but i that's that uh, that however has been a, a, a positive benefit because you got and you also got a lot of very very high profile people now backing aml indirectly through this work of predicate offense like for example uh, the Prince of Wales, um, Prince William, uh, who is now involved, who's invo- involved in wildlife, wi- endangered wildlife species, right. and uh, Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, who's been involved in financial inclusion issues. So you, you're getting a huge amount of international attention paid to these issues now. Um, whether or not it's gone too broad, and whether or not it needs to be refocused. The other, the other thing to say about it, John, is that despite the fact that a lot of countries are getting decent marks on FATF uh, evaluations, there's still a heck of a lot of money being laundered every day through the big countries of the world. This right. includes the U.S., the U.K., Europe, and so on and so forth. And if we're doing, if we're all doing so well, <laughs> why aren't we seeing a dent in that? Right. Yeah, it's a good point. And obviously, we've seen the uh, uh, the reports, the Pandora Papers, Paradise Papers, the FinCEN files. So uh, yeah. we know that um, shell companies are still uh, very much out there, even though everybody's focused on beneficial ownership issues. I mean, I'm embarrassed yeah. how yeah. slow Canada has been on this. When I was involved right. in the FATF, we were we were right up there leading the charge and beating the drum on on beneficial ownership, and the United States was considered to be behind us. Right. And I remember officials throwing up their hands saying, "This will never get done." Well, look at where we are today. The U.S. Right. I think has moved ahead of Canada now in terms of the work that it's doing in Washington on on beneficial ownership. We're at the point where we've only now got the federal system in place starting soon sometime maybe right <laughs> provinces still in, still generate a lot of a lot of uh, that they, they still incorporate a lot of entities 
and there hasn't been much movement there. There has been in some province like BC with the Cullen Commission as a, and maybe that's the answer in Canada going forward. The provinces are going to have to, you know, uh, take up some of the slack because up until now they probably really haven't done enough. It's all been a federal initiative. But the feds here don't have the pull and the clout that the, the U.S. feds do vis-a-vis -vis the states. And, and that's one thing I do remember as being a big advantage that there was in the U.S., where you've got so much federal clout that they can, they can in effect, you know, uh, sort of elbow their way into a, an issue and sort of take first place in front of the states. And that's and that is probably a good thing in a way because it means that there's much better and more priority focus on big, big issues. But here, that that doesn't seem to be happening. Well, Nick, I really appreciate your insight and obviously all the work that you've done and continue to do. And uh, uh, I think what I take from the conversation is it's sort of a mixed rating. You know, I, all of us, we could all do better. Obviously, there are very committed compliance folks. They don't always get the support, unfortunately. And there's always there's many committed uh, public sector folks as well. It, and it's yeah. it's all about priorities. And I, I do like your I, I didn't really figure out exactly where you were going with your comment about predicate offenses, but I do understand it. I, I, and I think I agree with you that even though it's great to focus on some issues like human trafficking and you know, elder fraud, you know, specific yeah. things that are challenging all yeah. of us. At the end of the day, it's all about the suspicious movement of dollars. That's right. Currency, right? And and if you can focus yeah. on that, it almost doesn't matter what it's being used for because it's being used for something criminal. Let the experts sort of figure that out. So I think sort of- Well, a, it's, it's, it's useful to know if you're a banker or in the financial sector and you've got some connection to one of these sectors right. of one of these activities or you know the you know if for example if you're a, a bank that's banking a lot of hotels right then you then you may be saying to yourself yeah they've got a point we should look at this because you know we, we take a we're banking a lot of these hotels we're looking at their income we're looking at their expenses so likewise with uh imports and exports if you know animal parts illegal right. cross-border movement of uh uh, firearms and other dangerous, you know, or classified or restricted articles, antiquities. I mean, if you're in those businesses, it's useful to know that there's a risk there. But uh, but as you say, at the end of the day, it's about the proceeds of that of that crime. Right, right. Well, Nick, again, thanks so much for your time today. Really well, appreciate it, and we're definitely gonna chat some more going forward because uh, the, the insight is uh, not only super helpful, but yeah, it's very compelling. And again, your experience, you should be very proud of what you created in Canada, even though it seems like OSFI doesn't have the same leverage it used to. But at the end of the day, maybe people will figure that out because, uh, you know, next time you're evaluated uh, by FATF, it'll be interesting to see what they see say, what if anything, about that change. I'll be curious about that. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations, brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.